Last time we talked about the, the I am statements. And I mentioned the first one, I am the bread of life. And we talked about the, the spiritual connections between eating and drinking and believing. And we discussed that at length last week. Um, this week we're going to spend a little time looking at the second I am statement. Because it's not as obvious to what he's referring to. And that's found in John 8. So if you go to John 8 real quick. John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Remember the Greek phrase, ego eimi. It comes out of Exodus 3.14 when God said, I am. This is another statement. A similar statement is made in John 9, verse 5. Jesus said, while I'm in, I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what does this mean when he says, I am the light? I am the light of the world. Well, let's get some context here because we have to go back. John 8.12 follows the story of the woman caught in adultery. Anyone know any problems with the story? Anyone have brackets in their Bible that surround that? Go back to verse uh, seven, chapter 7, verse 53. Does anyone have a bracket starting that verse? Okay. At the end of chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 11, yes. do you have a bracket? Yes. Anybody know what those brackets mean? Right. The earliest manuscripts do not contain this story. This is a story that was added later. And so the NASB leaves it in there for tradition so it doesn't mess up your verse numberings. But it wasn't part of the original, and we know that because the earliest manuscripts don't have it. In other manuscripts that do have it, the story moves around. In some places it's here, some places it actually shows up in Luke, and other places it shows up in other parts of John. So the story kind of moves around. It was added to the text later. And so chapter 7 actually ends in verse 52. Now, from verse 52 back to verse 40 is kind of like a parenthetical section. He tells you how the people are responding to what Jesus says. So if you were to think of this as a movie, you have the main character speaking and then the speech kind of stops for a moment, and the camera shifts to the audience, and you get to see how the audience is acting and responding to the message. And that's what verses 40 through 52 do. You go back one, one verse from that, 37 through 39 is the end of Jesus' teaching. So when we're talking about Jesus' dialogue and what Jesus is saying, you go from chapter 7, verse 39, and you jump all the way to chapter 8, verse 12. And that just continues what he's saying. Jesus is at the temple. He is teaching. It is the week of Passover. I'm sorry, it's the, week of, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he is teaching in the temple at the feast. Uh, go to chapter 7, verse 37. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
But this is he who spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, where the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then jump to verse chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Do you see how one logically follows right after the other? The then of chapter 8, verse 12 follows immediately off of chapter 7, verse 39. Everybody following me? Everybody understand where I'm at? Okay. The Feast of Tabernacles is going to be important to our understanding of this, this these two statements, because you have one in chapter 7, 39. Um, he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You have that statement, and then you have the statement in chapter 8, verse 12. What is he talking about? To understand that, you need to understand a little bit about the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was a seven-day feast. It lasted for one week, and it was a way to commemorate God bringing them through the wilderness. And so what they would do to remember that is they would live in tabernacles. They would make little houses out of branches, and they would live outside for a week. And then there were some temple ceremonies that would happen, and they were marked by two primary temple ceremonies. One was a lamp lighting ritual that happened at the tabernacle. We'll talk about that in a minute. The other one followed the lamp lighting. And what the priest would do is he would leave the tabernacle and he would go down to the pool of Siloam. And he would take a golden jar and he would fill it with water. And they would bring that jar back in a procession back to the temple and they would offer their normal morning offerings, and then they would offer a special drink offering every morning, and they would use the water that they pulled from the Pool of Siloam. While they were making the drink offering, they would recite Isaiah 12, verse 3, which says, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And that ceremony is to remind them of an event that happened in the Old Testament. When Israel wanted bread, God rained bread from the sky. That's where we get John 6. And I am the bread of the I'm the bread of life. I was about to say I'm the bread of the world. It's not right. This one, this idea of come to me and drink relates back to when they wanted water. Remember they said, you brought us out to die, we're, we're going to die of thirst. And God made water gush from a rock. And he provided water to them when they needed it. He saved them in that sense. And here in the Feast of Tabernacles, this takes on an eschatological idea. That God would pour out his spirit on Israel. Um, mark your spot in John 8. Let's go back and look at some Old Testament passages here real quick. We're just going to look at, well, we're going to look at a couple. Go back to Zechariah. You get to flip through the uh, minor prophets. Zechariah, maybe I should give you the verse. Zechariah 13. 
uh, starting in verse 1. Would somebody read Zechariah 13, 1? talking about in the last days there's going to be a day of salvation and notice he says there will be a fountain that is opened up the fountain of water is the idea of salvation god will bring salvation to them uh, ezekiel 47 is another place we can go that's a little bit easier to find than zechariah Ezekiel is given a vision of water flowing out from Jerusalem. And the water here gives life to everything. Uh, Ezekiel 47, verse 9. Would someone else like to read that? Okay. There you go. And the idea of the water giving life, that's the idea of salvation. God is going to open up this fountain. He's going to give life to Israel and to all of his people. Um, we can go back to John 8. Now, that's what they're commemorating with this idea of bringing the water into the temple and offering the drink offering with water. This idea that God is going to bring salvation and the water is the picture of salvation. So when Jesus in John 7, verse 37, standing at the temple, he's in the, the court of women, says now, cries out and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What is the image the people are hearing? Or what is the image they're hearing? What is the image the people are getting? The image of the, the rock, the water, the provision. Right. Yeah. If you want salvation, come to me. I am the promised salvation that was given to you. And just as Israel was thirsty in the wilderness, if you are thirsty and you want, if you're spiritually thirsty, you can come to Christ and you can drink. And remember, the idea of eating and drinking is believing. This is similar to what he told the woman in John 4. Remember the woman at the well? He said, so everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I'm sorry, that's 4, 13 and 14. There the water is the spirit that will bring life to the believer. We're in uh, John 7 and 8. End of 7, beginning of 8. Chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. My computer is acting crazy. Okay. Um, rivers of living water refers to the spiritual life that is produced by that. The fruit that comes out of them is what he means by the water flowing out of him. Jesus is the fulfillment and the source of salvation that that ceremony is supposed to be depicting. Then we get to chapter 8, verse 12. Let me see if I can fix this. This is going crazy on me. 
There we go. Oh, well, that's why my computer is going crazy. Um, chapter 8, verse 12. He finishes telling them, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And then, chapter 8, verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Remember those two ceremonies? One was a lamp lighting, and one was the getting of the water. Let's talk about the lamp lighting. The lamp lighting happened at the temple on the very first night of the feast. And there was a golden candlestick that was lit. Uh, John MacArthur. See if this will work now. No, it doesn't want to work. All right, well. It is what it is. Okay, well, I'll read the, the... I had it there for you, but um, I'll read the quote. In the very court of the women where Jesus was speaking, four, four huge can, candelabra, which were these massive candles with three or four on them, were lit, pushing light up into the sky like a searchlight. So brilliant was their light that one ancient Jewish source declared, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect their light. Think of like a spotlight shooting up into the sky. That's how bright these candles were. What do you think that's an image back to? That's, an, that's picturing an Old Testament event of a, a pillar of fire. This was an allusion back to God guiding Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. A pillar of light. You can find that story in Exodus 13, uh, 21 and 22 mentions it. The light that was in the temple that they lit that day would go out by the end of the week. When Jesus stood there and said, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I am the light that guides and leads, and I'm never going out. You can follow me. I am a sure source. I am a sure way. Just as the children of Israel followed the pillar of light through the wilderness, you are follow, called to follow Christ. Uh, John 10, verse 4. We're actually going to John 10 next. I'm just going to turn this off because I don't think this is going to work. John 10, verse 4. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And that's picking up on our next statement that we're going to look at briefly. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the one who gives guidance. He's the one who gives wisdom. And he's the one you should follow, is the idea of I am the light of the world. Any questions on those? Wonderful, wonderful. That's one of the reasons I wanted to go through this, because that's, that's not obvious from the text, and you, you have to work for it. Okay, let's look at these others. These others are going to be really short, because most of them are pretty straightforward. Uh, John chapter 10, uh, he's talking about Jesus. Obviously, this is Jesus speaking. Verse 7, So Jesus said to them again, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. The meaning here is pretty obvious. 
doors provide safety and security. Let me just read the next couple of verses. Let me back up here. Um, yeah, well, verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go out in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the door. I guard you from the thief. I guard you from the robber. I guard you from the murderer. I provide safety and security. I save you. That's the idea. When he says I'm a door, he's talking about I protect. Uh, John 10, let's look at the other one. There's a, um, I had studied this for one of my classes, and they would build little pins to put the sheep in, but the pin wouldn't have a door. The shepherd would be the door, and at night he would actually lay down in the door, and he'd take his staff and lay it across the top of the pin, and so the sheep couldn't get out, and if the wolf wanted to get in, he'd have to go through the shepherd. Which I thought was a beautiful image. And so Jesus says, I am the door. And I defend and I guard my sheep. They know me. And they will not follow another. And if they try to follow another, what does he do? Goes and grabs them, brings them back. Um, and that kind of brings us to the next idea. I am the good shepherd. Uh, chapter 10, verse 11. Right after our the section we just finished. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jump down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Where does this come from? This comes right out of Psalm 23. The idea of God being a shepherd. Not just a shepherd. What was that verse? Psalm 23? No, no. John, the shepherd, the good shepherd. John 10? John 10. 11 and 14. comes right out of Psalm 23. When he says, I am the good shepherd, that's what the Jews would have heard him saying. They, is, they would have understood exactly they would, what he was getting at. Yeah, it's the shepherd's psalm. Because God said, I am your shepherd. Right? Um, it's not just that he's a shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Other shepherds fail. Other shepherds leave their sheep. Other shepherds get tricked by wolves and he doesn't. He defends their sheep, and it's not just that he defends them. Most shepherds would defend their sheep. This shepherd, verse 11, lays down his life for his sheep. He gives it all for them. He says it again in 14 and 15, I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Even Caiaphas, anybody remember who Caiaphas is? The high priest. Chapter 11, verse 49. 
But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now when he had set, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's uh, John eleven forty nine through fifty two. Even his enemies recognized that Jesus was going to die for his own, and that same idea is expressed again in John eighteen fourteen. If just a, that's cross reference. Okay, John eleven. Um, any questions on that? Comments? Pretty straightforward, right? John eleven twenty five. We have the next I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. You could probably spend some time studying that one out. Um, basically, I am your hope of salvation. I'm your hope of eternal life. I'm your hope of resurrection. You can be resurrected through me. John 14:6, just for the sake of time here. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This refers to Jesus being the exclusive Savior. This refers to his veracity, that he is honest, that he's truthful, that he is the source of life. He's actually attacking Greek philosophers at this point. Greek philosophers had all sorts of other gods that you could go to, all other sources of truth. You can simply take each of those, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and just add of God at the end of it, of each one. I am the way of God, I am the truth of God, and I am the life of God. Uh, the last I am statement is in John 15, verse 1. This speaks of relationship and enablement for living. I am the, the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Your connection to the Father, your connection to God is always through Christ, and there is no other way for you to have any kind of relationship with the Father. Does all that make sense? Okay. Any questions, comments? No. Okay. So, you know, in the end of 14, it says, I am going to the Father, for you are the greatest than I am. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of I am statements in there. You'll find a lot of times where he says "ego a me," um, but these are just the seven big ones that have a lot of theology packed to them. But you're exactly right. I think. If I remember correctly, it's used 20 to 1 some odd times by Jesus in the Gospel of John. So, right. um, Jesus says, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches, if you abide in me. Mm -hmm. um, is that, abide in me, is that like you know, our position, you know, in Christ, or, and also you know, our daily life? You know, mm -hmm. is there something to that? I um, always kind of wondered about that. 
abiding in him, the best way I, I would know to explain that is continually trusting and looking to. Uh, branches don't branch out on their own, right? Uh, they stay connected. And I, that's how I would explain that. All right. Well, I'm going to see if I can get this to work here because... We're going to do interpretive challenges. There are two that we're going to look at. Um, the first one is in John chapter 3. And I'm hoping I can get it to where I can put it up here for you. On that, what she was just bringing up, I was just wondering. The thought just came to me. I can't get the right, find the right word, but mm -hmm. if we look at it from that direction. If, if you abide in me as a statement, then if you... If, if, you, your conduct. We look, but could it also be from the other side that if you are in me, you will stay. You will. There's this connection. Right. Is I in the one who keeps you? Because right. You, I am in you, and I abide in you. Therefore, you will. Yes. Yeah. Go forth and be obedient. Yeah. That in the inverse of that is absolutely inverse, true. Yeah. Exactly. You're exactly right. The inverse of that would be absolutely true. Maybe that's what I was sort of wondering about because I always felt like, you know, that's like pressure on us mm -hmm. if, it, if it depends on us, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, to some degree it, right. it affects our daily life, but no, that, a reassure, I mean, that, if you're thinking I could lose, I mean, in the broad sense, I could lose my salvation. Maybe I'm not abiding, right. you know, maybe I'm this not This is dangerous territory and this right. is a very threatening statement, whereas if you look at it, at the inverse of I am in you, you are in the, or you, uh, you abide in me, I abide in you. That's a statement of reassurance. Right. It's not a threat. Right. Yeah. So it, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, there, there's the obvious implicit idea is you're connected to me, right? Yeah. And the only one who takes you away is the vine dresser, right? That's a long discussion. Um, <laughs> but... So the inverse of that is definitely true. He is holding on to you. He's keeping you. Right. And the means by which he is doing that is by the recognition, I'm part of him. Yeah. And I'm continually looking to him and depending on him. And my life comes from him. And so it's that weakness that says, the vine says, I need him. I need to stay with him. Right? So exactly. Perfect. Wonderful. Okay. The first interpretive challenge is in John chapter 3. Um, this is a well-known chapter. Let's see if I can get this to work. Please. Please, Lord. Oh, look at that. It works. Okay, well, I'm just going to go ahead and give you the all the options here. John chapter 3, well-known chapter. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus in the night. Uh, verse 1, now there was a man, named, man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was probably the leader of the synagogue. Uh, the, uh, I just lost the name. Starts with an S. Huh? No. I, I don't remember. Sanhedrin, thank you. <laughs> yes, mine went completely brewing. This man came to Jesus by night. He came by night because he didn't want his friends to see him. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the thing, these signs that you do unless God is with him. The signs are the ones we talked about 
two weeks ago, all the miracles Jesus was doing. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I want to note something. Verse 3, he says, Jesus answered him. The word he uses here is a word that means he answered a question. What question did Nicodemus ask? If you look at verse 2, there's no question there. Jesus knows Nicodemus's heart. He knows exactly what Nicodemus wants to ask. And so he just jumps right to the point. Nicodemus is asking, how can I enter into the kingdom? How can I be saved? How can I make sure I'm going to heaven? And so Jesus answers him and says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The necessity for entering into the kingdom is to have a new birth. You must be born again. Literally here, born from above. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's thinking physical rebirth. Jesus is talking about something completely different. But notice Nicodemus' question, How can I do this? How do I do it? And so Jesus gives them the answer. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I don't know where I am in my notes, but that's okay. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Notice, being born of the water and Spirit is, depend, is necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. Which means that statement is now parallel to the statement in verse 3. You must be born again. You must be born from above. Those two are the same idea. Being born of water and the Spirit is the same as being born from above. Everybody follow me? Okay. Let me find out where I am. Okay. This makes this a salvation issue. Whatever answer we give to our interpretive challenge, it is a salvation issue. So what's the issue? What's the challenge? What does it mean to be born of water? He says, be born of water and spirit. What's this idea of being born of water? And I have the different possibilities. That's not all of the possibilities. Those are just the ones that I thought were worth actually looking at. I guess I always thought it was like the physical birth because you know, a woman's water breaks and there's fluid in there. So mm -hmm. In other words, the physical birth, but obviously that's not what he's talking about. Yeah, and that is one of the views. Okay. okay. Um, let I, I will just kind of go down this list here. Interpolation. Um, <laughs> that's a really fancy word to say, a scribe added by water sometime later. Um. The problem with that is there's no evidence of it. There's no manuscript evidence that shows that this was missing at some point. The phrase born by of water has always been there. There's no evidence it was ever added later. It's not like John 7 and 8 where we have this big section that's been added. There's no, there's no textual variant here. So that, that's not it. Um, the second one, semen. This sounds a little weird, 
born of water and spirit refers to two births. I think this is the idea that you were going for. One being physical and one being spiritual. And the water in this view could refer to amniotic fluid, the fluid that's in the sac that holds the baby. And in rare cases, this could refer to semen itself. There's a couple problems here, though. First, it views being born of water and being born of spirit as two separate ideas, and that these are two different things. The problem is they're both in the same prepositional phrase. Born of water and spirit. That's the same prepositional phrase, so the Greek grammar doesn't allow you to divide the two. So they have to be referring to the same event. And the other problem here is this is equivalent to what he said in verse 3. So it can't be two separate events and it can't be referring to physical birth because Nicodemus has already been physically born. Secondly, this would be a rare and unique use of the term in ancient Greek literature. To use water in this way would be very rare. Um, there are actually no examples in ancient literature outside of Scripture where this term for water is used to describe birth. It's never used in that way. And then third, in ancient Greek literature, the word for water is also not used to describe semen. There is a word that's used to describe that, and it's the word we would translate as drops. But it wouldn't, we wouldn't use, they wouldn't use the word for water here. So I don't think the second one is a good option. I, I think... Well, another thing, if uh, you're born first time, the semen is from one, it's, can't, you cannot be the same at all be the same person. Right. Whereas with Christ, you're the same person physically, but you're, you've got a different mindset. Right, yeah. So it's a different kind of birth that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Completely different. You're born from above. You're not born in the normal way. So I think we have a lot of reasons to reject the first two. Let, let's talk about the Word of God. I have this out of order. Okay, well, that's okay. Um, the reference here refers to the Torah or the Pentateuch. Sometimes in rabbinic literature, uh, water is used to describe the Torah or the Pentateuch. Um, but it's never, the Torah is never associated with water. Um, I'm sorry. I said that wrong. It's never associated with being born of water. Let me rephrase that. It is associated with water, but not being born of water. There's no idea of birth connected to the Torah or the Pentateuch in ancient literature. And secondly, that wouldn't fit with the thrust of John's Gospel. If it says you're supposed to be born of water, is that the point that you're, you're supposed to be born of the Torah? Is that the point John is trying to make in his Gospel? That you need to go to the Torah to find salvation? Who's he, what, who or what is John pointing people to in his gospel? To Christ. He's pointing people to Christ, yeah. So he's pointing people to Christ, and if he were to say you were to be born of water, and by that means you are to be born of Scripture, completely outside of what John is trying to accomplish. He's pointing people to Christ rather than pointing them to, um, to Scripture, although Scripture would be important here. John 6, 63. Um, 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. He's pointing people to Christ. He's pointing people to himself. Uh, that was John 6.63, John 5.39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. He's just putting the scriptures in the right place. The scriptures are not the object of your devotion. They are the means to find what you're looking for, right? You're supposed to be looking for Christ, not looking for the text. I don't think this works. I don't think saying that the water here, born of water, is a reference to being born of scripture or born of the Torah. Everybody following me? Okay. Um, baptism. One view says that this is the baptism of John the Baptist. In this view, it says that Jesus is essentially telling him, you need to go and get baptized by John, and not just dunked, but get the baptism of repentance. And so you need to go and do that. Well, the problem with that is it assumes that John the Baptist was popular enough and well-known enough that just the mere mention of water would send their minds to think about John the Baptist. There's no evidence that he was that popular. Secondly, other passages seem to minimize the necessity of John's baptism. Um, let's just stay in chapter 3. Uh, look at verse 23. Uh, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. Jump down to verse 30. He then turns around, even though he's baptizing, and he says of Jesus, He must increase and I must decrease. He was baptizing. People see Jesus. They run and follow Jesus. And now he's no longer pushing them to come back. Follow me. He's pushing them to Christ. And every time we have mention of John's baptism, it seems to be pushed kind of in the background. He was the forerunner. He is to vanish out of sight. So I don't think Jesus here is talking about that. And finally, we're talking about a requirement to enter into heaven. Where in Scripture is John the Baptist mentioned as a requirement for entrance into heaven? Right? Okay. Then there's the idea of Christian baptism. And this is the most popular view out of all of the views today. When you read commentaries, this will likely be the one that people will point to. When he says born of water, what he's talking about is baptism. Now, there are some groups, Catholics, Lutherans, teach that uh, when you're baptized, you're regenerated. You're made a new creature by being baptized. Uh, the Catholic Church would say it's ex opere operata, which is by the working of the work. By merely doing the action, salvation occurs. And some groups of the Lutherans would say the same thing. Um, J.C. Ryle said, is it, a, it is a view which is supported by much learning and many strange and far-fetched arguments. Love the way those old guys write. But some would say that this isn't really talking about baptismal regeneration, that you're, you're saved through baptism. This is just talking about the necessity of baptism. If you're a Christian, you should be baptized. 
And in that sense, you cannot be saved without baptism. That's the implication of applying that to this, this text. This text is talking about salvation. And if baptism is in view here, he's saying you cannot be saved without baptism. And that's the first problem with the view. You've made baptism a requirement for salvation. And yet, if you look at the rest of the context of John 3, baptism is never mentioned. There is no direct mention of baptism anywhere in John 3. In fact, it focuses on a lot of things, just not baptism. John 3, uh, verse 8, he focuses on the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born, what? Of the Spirit. It focuses on the work of the Son. If you jump down to uh, John 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. It focuses on the work of God and on faith. Uh, John 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. No mention of baptism. The work of God, the work of the Son, the work of faith, the work of the Spirit. Baptism, absent. If the Spirit is tied to baptism, then Jesus' comparison of the Spirit to wind becomes really difficult to understand. He said in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wills, and you have no idea where it's going. Well, if you get the Spirit by baptism, then you do know where it's going. It's going to wherever you baptize somebody. It completely invalidates what he says. Christian baptism is not taught, and nor is it practiced throughout the Old Testament. And that's important. It's important here because if Jesus is talking about Christian baptism, he's talking to a Pharisee who's trained in the Old Testament law. And he expects Nicodemus to know about it. Jump down, chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? How could he turn to Nicodemus and expect him to know about Christian baptism when the Old Testament says nothing about Christian baptism? There's no way Nicodemus could possibly know about it. And Jesus responds to him with a certain level of, in, um, of sarcasm and harshness that you can't expect if it's not taught. So I don't think baptism works. The final view, purification and cleansing. And that's the right view, at least in my opinion. Water is used figuratively, figuratively in the Old Testament, and it always re it refers to renewal or a cleansing. And this is especially true when it's used in conjunction with the Spirit. So when you find water and Spirit together, it's referring to the same idea. Numbers 18, 17, and 19 is part of the law. For time, we're not going to go there. The law talks about purifying things with water. If it can be purified by water, 
purify it that way. You can also purify things by fire. So some metal object that was impure, you could purify it by passing it through the fire. Water could be used to purify. It was also used in conjunction with the pouring out of the Spirit. Um, notice the pouring of the Spirit. Uh, Psalm 32.15 is another reference that talks about the Spirit will be poured out. Joel 2.28 talks about the pouring out of the Spirit. The best example is Ezekiel 36. You guys know the story of Ezekiel 36. 36, 25 through 27. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. Their water is the picture of being cleansed. Ceremonial cleansing. That's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. And the Spirit here refers to the transformation of their hearts. And that transformation will give them the ability to obey. And not coincidentally, Ezekiel 37. Anybody remember what Ezekiel 37 talks about? Dry bones. Dry bones. No water. And the Spirit will be poured out and give life to dry bones. 36, 25 through 27. When Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again, born of water and spirit, he was saying Nicodemus needed spiritual cleansing and to receive a living spirit. To have a spirit inside of him that was spiritually alive, that would enable him to be obedient to God. What the Pharisee couldn't do. He wanted to do it, but he couldn't. D.A. Carson, this is kind of a long quote. What is emphasized is the need for radical transformation, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, anticipating the outpouring of the Spirit, and not a particular rite. If baptism is associated in the reader's minds with entrance into the Christian faith, and therefore with new birth, then they are being told in the strongest terms that it is the new birth itself that is essential, not the rite. It's not about getting dunked or sprinkled. It's about changing. It's about God changing the person's heart. Does that make sense to everybody? And with the dry bones, I mean, it's pouring out the spirit on the dry bones. Dry bones are dead, and it's going back to you are dead in your sins. Yeah. You are absolutely dead, and it doesn't happen until that spirit is poured out on you. That's right. That's right gives life and so that's the idea of being born again all right i've got 11 minutes here this next one shouldn't take real long john 20 verse 22 is our next interpretive challenge john 20 22 john 20 begins uh on the sunday following the crucifixion uh, John 20, verse 1, Now on the, day, uh, the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone was already taken away. Verse 3, Peter and John raced to the tomb. Verse 8, the disciples enter the tomb. Mary Magdalene stays outside. They realize the tomb is empty and the disciples, in verse 10, go home. 
Verse 11 and 12, Mary Magdalene looks into the tomb. She finds it empty. She sees two angels there. Verse 16, Jesus shows up, reveals himself, says, it's me. And then verse 18, Mary runs back and tells the disciples, I've seen the risen Lord. He's alive. And that brings us to 2019. That's a really fast overview. Verse 19 is one week later. Notice in verse 19, on the first day of the week, again, this is Sunday. Verse 21, So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. The idea here is Jesus is now commissioning his disciples, and he's going to send them out to fulfill the Great Commission. But in order to do that, in order to do the work he's sending them out for, they need empowerment. They need the Spirit. So we get John 20, verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now here's where a big part of the confusion is. He breathed on them. On them is an interpretation. The text literally says, He breathed. He exhaled. He exhaled. It doesn't say he breathed on them. I make that point because it's going to become relevant here in a minute. So what's the challenge here? The challenge is, what does he mean here by receive the Holy Spirit? Um, some say this is a myth making a theological point. That is to say, John really wasn't saying what actually happened. He's kind of just making this up so he can make a theological point. But this event didn't really happen. Anybody want to go with that idea? We'll throw that one out. Okay. The second view, a full bestowal of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the apostles received the Holy Spirit completely, fully, right here, right now. Exactly. Uh, flip in my Bible, it's only one page, one or two pages away. Flip over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, Jesus comes back. This is after um, these events. He spends 40 days with them, teaching them about the kingdom. Acts 1 verse 3, To these he also presents himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering to them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the promer, wow, for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. What did the Father promise? The Father promised to give them the Spirit. Acts 1 verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 1 verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Notice, you will. Those are future tense verbs. This is going to happen later. Now this is after he's already been resurrected. This is after he spent 40 days with them teaching on the kingdom of God. And he says, you will receive the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus had already promised when they would receive the Holy Spirit. Anybody know when he had promised they would receive it? There was a specific event that must occur before they would receive the Holy Spirit. Yes. John 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But I will go, I will send him to you. When Jesus returns back to the Father and he receives his full glory again, and he shares the glory of the Father, then the Spirit will come to you. That didn't happen in John 20. Jesus didn't ascend to the Father until Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. And the Spirit, as John said, doesn't come until Acts chapter 2. If John 20 is talking about the full reception of the Holy Spirit, what happened in Acts 2? Because Acts 2 says, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. That's where the full soul of the Spirit occurred. So I think the second one we can get rid of. The third one, a temporary bestowal of the Holy Spirit. This one is just, doesn't make any sense to me. It really doesn't. Um, this view just says, look, the apostles needed some power between now and the day of Pentecost. And so the Spirit, they gave him a little bit of power, they, you know, a little bit of his presence, but not the full thing. Yeah, you know, I'm going to put up 500 bucks for the car. and you know, yeah. I, Theologically, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I, I can't find anything that supports it, and that's all I'm going to say about it. So, um, The last one, I think this is the best one. It's an anticipation of future bestowal of the Holy Spirit. And the, the argument, again, basically what this is saying, look, Jesus is making a promise. And he's saying, you're going to receive the Spirit. I'm promising this is going to happen. The argument that's used against this view is this. Yes, he's saying, you're going to receive the Spirit. But, in John 20, verse 22, he uses a present imperative. That is to say, a present tense verb talks about action that's currently taking place. The imperative says it's a command. Which means Jesus must be saying, you are receiving the Spirit right now. And there's no other way, they say, that that can be interpreted. Problem. Um, John uses the present imperative for future events in other places. Uh, John 7, verse 37, come now, drink. John 7, verse 39, they were to receive, still present imperative. Um, in both of those, he's talking about things that are going to happen later that didn't happen there, but he uses a present tense verb. So you can't argue based off only on the present tense verb that this is happening right then and there. The context is going to determine how you view that. Do you have a question? No? Okay. Um, yeah. He's basically saying this is what will happen and he's saying it in the sense that I'm guaranteeing that this will happen. Okay, So I think this last one is the best view. Um, it's an anticipation of future bestowal. He's just anticipating what will happen. Any questions, comments, concerns? So there's only two interpretive challenges? 
There's a third one, but we did on the very first day, okay. which is what's the purpose of John's gospel? And basically it boils down to two ideas. It's evangelistic or it's for edification. Um, I settled on it's evangelistic, but I think being for edification would be a good secondary purpose. Mm -hmm. Others would flip that and say it's for edification of the church and evangelism is a secondary. Right. I, it, seems, it seems amazing to me that there's, quote, only a, a few. Yeah. You know, for such a, an amazing book, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's like in Matthew, there was like 15 to 20 of them. And, you know, we spent two or three classes going through them. But there's only three that really stick out. And I'm sure there's people who can find other areas where they disagree. But yeah. these are the big ones that really matter. So, anything else? All right. Well, I only have a minute. And that's not fair to start the Pauline epistles with a minute. <laughs> that's like teasing people. That's just me. Okay. So well, how will you do the Pauline I'm going to do an overview. Okay. I don't anticipate the overview is going to be a full class. We'll do an overview and then uh, we'll jump right into Romans. But I, I keep, I, I just kept like, every time I go back to John, it's like there's more I have to talk about. So we're done. John is over. We're finished. Okay, well, let me pray and we'll be done. <coughs> Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that uh, you've given us books like the Gospel of John that point us to Christ, whether that's uh, for the purpose of saving people or that's for the purpose of edification. Uh, your Word is a blessing. It is a light to our feet. And uh, we are so thankful for it. We're so thankful that it points us to Christ and helps us get to know our Savior. And uh, we just ask that you would continue to draw us closer to Him and help us to serve you in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.